Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Um, our guest is Dr. Paul Green, and he was my postdoctorate supervisor for a year and a half. And I went and I saw him, and he would supervise me with the 9-11 families I was working with. And he is an amazing clinician and a wonderful supervisor. And he was fantastic because I had been with these families a couple of years, and some of them I wasn't sure where to go at this point, and he, was a complete, he gave me a completely fresh and new perspective. And he has wonderful ways of working with families, so I'm very excited to have him on today. Um, so as I said, our guest is Dr. Paul Green, and our topic is providing help in the workplace, how do New York firefighters heal after September 11th. Dr. Paul Green is professor of psychology at Iona College. He has been responding to disasters for over 20 years and joined the Disaster Response Network of the New York State Psychological Association when it started in 1991 and currently chairs the Disaster Relief Committee of the Westchester Psychological Association. He received the Distinguished Service Award from the NYSPA in 2003 and the WCPA's Distinguished Service Award in 2006. Following the September 11th attacks, he worked as a firehouse clinician for the Counseling Services Unit of the FDNY. He recently co-authored FDNY Crisis Counseling, Innovative Responses to 9-11 Firefighters, Families, and Communities, dedicated to those impacted by the events of September 11th. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you for those kind words. Hi, Paul. It's great to have you on the show. Um, before we get started about talking about how you started working with the fire department, I wanted to uh, ask you if you could log in a little bit on thoughts of, of uh, how you think uh, this kind of disaster in Minneapolis, how that impacts other people, maybe even the firefighters or whatever, to see this kind of thing on, on television. Uh, sure. Um, because it's such a public and massive event and affects so many different cohorts of, of people, um, everybody is going to be feeling uh, this much, much more. Um, certainly anybody who has suffered a loss is, is going to think about those people and their own memories are going to be triggered by it, as well as the rescue workers who are in there who have to do some very difficult things. Um, sometimes just waiting around is terribly difficult, but then also a lot of the recovery work is going to be very traumatic for them. And yeah, so they were talking about the divers, how difficult it is because they can't see anything and they have to go by feel a lot. They do, and um, working with them afterwards is also quite challenging because uh, of the things that, that do go down in those dark places in the water. Um, so my heart goes out to them, and, and I know that from what a little bit I've seen on television, how they're mobilizing and preparing and trying to be of help to everybody involved. And I think you're bringing up a good point, Paul, because I think we often forget about the impact on the rescue workers. We are so busy focusing on the family's grief that we forget about what the rescue workers are going through. And I suppose in the order of things that's appropriate, they're there to help, and their issues come later, um, and other people have to move on to do their work. But the rescue workers um, do go through quite a bit of trauma themselves. Now, what would you say for our listeners out there who say maybe their uh, child or spouse or someone died, maybe even in the last year, how would you suggest that they might take care of themselves today? Um, I, I wish I could say there was one way for everybody, but um, if, if I had to generalize, I think those 
activities that they find comforting that give them some support and strength that helps them to communicate and connect to other people uh, are the things that over the long run tend to be those things that help bring us back towards that place of hope that you had talked about in your opening. Uh, communication and, and reliance on natural strengths that we already have in our lives is, is probably the, the best way. Um, and I know some uh, one of the widows I was working with at 9-11 um, said that she took a news break, too. Oh, absolutely. A news break is a, a very good suggestion for those people who are, especially those people who are without appropriate information right now. They need to be careful about where they get their information from. There's, there's so much misinformation that goes out with the public event that um, taking a news break is a good idea. Well, um, I, before we get started, for folks that have just tuned into the show, again, we wanted to say how um, uh, Heidi and I wanted to say that our heart goes out to the folks in Minneapolis, Minnesota, whose um, relatives may have been involved in the caving of the bridge there. And we've asked uh, Kathy Seaheader, who's um, with She's on the National Board of the Compassionate Friends with me, and we've asked her to send something to the grief blog about support uh, that the Compassionate Friends offers in that um, Minnesota area, Minneapolis area. Well, uh, when we went to break, Heidi and Paul, we were talking, uh, I said when we came back, we were going to talk to Paul Green about how he started working with the firefighters in the fire department, and how did you? Well, let, let me take you back to the beginning of disaster response. Uh, work in general um, because it's a relatively new field, probably 20 years, but people have been doing it well before then. There's a history of it, especially with veterans and post-war mm-hmm. kinds of events. So I had done my training with the VA post-Vietnam and uh, saw lots of those sorts of issues. And uh, later on in my career, I had worked with accident victims and chronic pain so that by the time the late 80s, early 90s came along, I had experienced what we now call, with what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and and uh, working with people who had suffered trauma. Mm-hmm. And so when 9-11 came along, um, they were looking for people, they needed people who had experience with those kinds of things, and New York State, through the American Psychological Association, the New York State Association, I work closely with different organizations, the fire department among them, and that's when I got the call to uh, see if I could be of assistance to the fire department. And uh, I was enlisted into that um, shortly after 9-11 and uh, stayed with that, and I still work with the firefighters um, who have been suffering the effect. Now, is that one specific firehouse that you work at in New York City? I was assigned to one specific firehouse. There were... 62 firehouses that had suffered direct losses um, and uh, 42 firehouse clinicians were assigned to those 62 houses. So I had I was assigned to one particular house that had lost their entire crew and rig in the disaster. Oh my gosh, that's wow. amazing, that's awful. Now how many people would that be? That would be six people. Uh-huh. And where is that firehouse located for our audience? Um, it was a special operations uh, unit that was located um, in the South Bronx. Okay. And they had responded as they would with special operations. They had responded to any major disaster, any place in the city, they would all go. Mm -hmm. And initially, Paul, you just went into the firehouse. They didn't come to you, right? Correct. Um, There are lots of different cultures, and and we think about male cultures or firefighter cultures in general, are not going to seek out help. They're not going to go to somebody's private office and say, 
I'm hurting, I need help, and I'm going to take myself offline when the mission was still to clear the site. Their job was to recover their brother firefighters, and they weren't leaving until that was done. So to ask anybody to leave the site it just was not going to happen. Except that now we realize that maybe they should have been asked to leave the site because there's some health issues. Uh, there are health issues. Lots of people should have been um, asked to leave the site for lots of different reasons. But at the time the decision was made, and I think it would have been virtually impossible to keep them off the site. Mm -hmm. They were there to recover their family. The firehouse is like a family, and they weren't leaving until they had recovered their men. So and they would come back to the firehouse after working at the site, and they would come back from that kind of trauma, and you, you would be in the firehouse. That's right. I was assigned to the firehouse, so I would go there, and since it's they, they're a 24-hour operation, seven days a week, I would go there at any time, any day, any hour, and um, become part of the firehouse. They accepted me into the firehouse as someone assigned by the fire department. I entered there with an experienced firefighter who introduced me to everyone there to get some acceptance for mental health services. Um, and they could get to know me, and, and they could access the services that I could bring right to them and design for them. Now, did you kind of sit in your office, or did I know they cook? Did you go cook, and did you eat with them, and how did it look? Well, absolutely, I ate with them. Of huh. course, when you go to a firehouse, if you can't eat with them, they have great meals. <laughs> and they're a great bunch of people, and so I would absolutely go there. And uh, if they invited me for the meal, that, that was considered a, um, an acceptance, an honor, really, to be able to break bread with them. And so I would go there at, at times, and mostly we would select times to go there that was not going to interfere with their need to go down to the site or their training or their regular firefighting duties. I would try to be there at times that were convenient for them. If you're going to somebody's work site to offer services, you don't want to be in the way, mm -hmm. and you don't want to be some nerdy psychotherapist. Yeah, you I remember to... you saying that somebody gave you advice, and it was don't be a nerd, didn't they? Yes. Well, <laughs> when, I, when I went through my training with a, a really experienced, wonderful captain who had to retire because his lungs were so uh, damaged from the job, uh, you know, I'm a university professor, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter that I grew up on the streets of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. You know, it, what matters is that I was a university professor, and I looked different, and I talked different, and so he wanted to make sure I was not going to be a nerd, and he <laughs> told me as much, and I enjoyed it, and I appreciated the uh, feedback, and so I went there trying to offer services to be who I am, not to put on airs, certainly. I'm not a firefighter, uh, but really to make connections with these men and see what they needed. And not just those men, but a firehouse, because it's a center, a family, they would bring their children, their wives, um, retired firefighters came there, community people came there. And so I tried to provide services for everybody that was part of the firehouse. I didn't even think about that. So there were other people in the house constantly. Oh, yeah. You know, firehouses are embedded in communities. And so there was a school across the street, and the school kids would draw pictures for the firehouse and the, for, the, for the men and, and help them in their grieving. Uh, the church down the street uh, sent over nuns. Uh, the community activists would come there. Retired firefighters would come there. Interested people. There are some people who just love fire departments, and they would drop by. Mm -hmm. So I was there for the community. So the healing of the community. Well, this brings up an email I've got um, because I'd like to get into some of the issues. And uh, this is a woman, Susan, uh, from Detroit, Michigan, and she says, My husband is a firefighter. Uh, I saw that you're going to have Paul Green on, 
and he works with firefighters. And she says, last year, he, my husband was injured in a building when the roof caved in. Two of his friends and fellow fire, firefighters were killed. He went back to work, but I am concerned because he's a lot more angry and impatient with the kids. Do you have any suggestions? I have lots of suggestions. Um, you know, for some people, going back to work is the most therapeutic thing they can do because at work you can talk with your brother firefighters about what happened, and fire communities have ways of dealing with this. Uh, it, it certainly would be helpful if he would talk to somebody because anger is the number one problem that people have in these kinds of traumatic, grief-stricken situations. Um, what does that look like? What are they angry about? How do they act? I mean, do well, they get quiet? They're, or? Well, they're, they're angry about the loss. They're angry that it happened. They're angry that they lost their friends and their friends were good firefighters. They're angry, sometimes rationally, sometimes irrationally, at the department, other people, other people who aren't as good as those individuals who died but live anyway. Mm-hmm. So the reactions of, of grief are rampant, and it's anger, the one seems to be the one that comes up most and is the most difficult aspect to help people through. And she's seen it spreading at home. Has that been your experience? That is uh, very typical, very typical. Sometimes what I would hear from firefighters, they would say to me, listen, I'm okay, uh, but my family's a little upset about it. Can you help my family? And so one approach might be to appeal to him that, you know, maybe the family needs some help uh, with his stress and there's a way of getting to talk to somebody. Certainly, I, I don't know certainly whether their department, if they're in a, a department that's large enough to have a counseling service unit, much like New York City has, but if they do, to try to access some of that. Uh, in New York, there's a, another kind of a program called The Other Side of the Firehouse where wives get together, mm-hmm. and that can be um, another access to getting support. Mm-hmm. It does take time. It yeah. really does. What, what are you talking about in, in terms of time? Can we give this woman kind oh, of a, gosh. it's been I, I, last year, she says. Uh, certainly a year is not um, unusual in length mm-hmm. of time, um, but I would hope that she can access some services, if not uh, for him, for herself and the family. And sometimes, and it's hard to generalize, of course, to all firefighters, but first responders tend to want to be helpful and they want to help their family. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a wonderful helps. idea of appealing to, to the husband that the family needs help. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's sometimes a way that they can hear it best. Mm-hmm. And, and especially for a firefighter or, like you said, Paul, the first responders, because they're used to helping other people. They're not used to receiving help. Right. They're used to hiding their feelings, doing what they need to do, staying on mission. Mm-hmm. And not being the one to ask for help. Now, we do see that with a lot of guys, even though they're not firefighters, they're working guys, and their job is to take care of the family, and, you know, if they've had a loss, it may be hard for them to get therapy. I, I think that that's probably one of the stereotypic features of, of the psychology of men, um, but not necessarily. There's far more variability, I think, outside of the first responder group mm-hmm. who have to do that. They really have to put their feelings aside to stay on mission. You can't talk about your feelings and then go out there and do some of the things that they have well, to well, do. Well, that's a good point. Like you said, you, you have to keep it together because you have a job to do. And I'm wondering, as a firehouse clinician, how did you help keep them short up when they were constantly going on calls, yet access their feelings and access what they were going through also? Uh, well, one thing was not to let things get too deep in the firehouse. 
if they brought it there, that's one thing. Um, but talking about um, particular events and traumatic memories, uh, when they're on call, when that alarm might go off and everybody runs out the door, that's not the time for it. Mm-hmm. But talking about making time for it uh, right. is a better approach. There's so that, that behavior modification of, of uh, compartmentalizing grief can be helpful. Absolutely helpful, necessary, and part of a healing process. Mm-hmm. I, I think the old model was to look at that as a bad thing and you have to break it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think people... You know, sometimes need to compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. Let me say that again. Compartmentalize. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and I think that uh, it's time for us to go to break. But what I'd like to do, Paul, when we come back from break, Heidi's got an email, but also I would like to talk a little bit about some of the uh, maybe tips or suggestions that you can give families to or men who are in policemen, firemen, any kind of first responder kind of thing where they uh, can compartmentalize their grief. Could you tell us a little bit about some ideas about how people can compartmentalize? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think the priority has to be that people have to make time for it. They have to realize that there are natural ways that we cope with things, that there are natural ways in their lives already um, to compartmentalize. Um, one's grief and as a, a way of coping with it before it can necessarily integrate into one's life um, and personality. So we make time for these things and rituals are a very natural way of doing that, anniversaries and rituals to think about it. You know, one firefighter I know who lost his best friend uh, in the collapse, for some reason he thinks of his best friend every time he finds a coin, he's able to think about him. Mm, I like that. And it's it's for him it, it has become a very natural reminder of feeling that his his friend is with him mm-hmm. in some sense, and um, that seems to work for him. Uh, that's how he makes time for it. And of course, uh, firefighters have many rituals in their life uh, to remember because loss is really part of their job. I was going to ask you that when you were working in the firehouse, were there rituals that were going on? at times where they would stop and remember the, the people, that, the guys that died or do certain things to remind themselves? Um, not within the first year. Uh-huh. There were too many other kinds of reminders. It was too massive at that point. There was uh, a period after about a year, uh, and this occurred in every firehouse that suffered a direct loss, where plaques uh, dedicated to the men were, were put up. In my particular firehouse, uh, one person there was a master carpenter who actually built a magnificent um, area mm-hmm. uh, there dedicated to the men, and that ritual uh, to dedicate those plaques was attended by family and friends and the top brass, and and uh, that was really the only time that there was a, a, a particular ritual. Now, was that after a year? Was there some significant... Did they just pick a date, or did they do it on the, the anniversary, or... It wasn't done on an anniversary because there were so many dedications. Mm, there were 62 right. dedications. It had to be scheduled. Uh, mm-hmm. The the plaques had to be readied and the work had to be done. Um, so, you know, it it happened when it could happen. You know, it's always interesting to have a place like that, and we sometimes suggest to people that they at, at a holiday. Uh, 
birthday or something that they put out a rose or they do something because uh, it, it's kind of always there, but you don't have to pay too much attention to it. But but you feel like well, you that you've kind of done either. it. There's not pressure to have to have words. Right. You've got these symbols. That's right, because so much of this is really nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a symbol, a place, um, I think, is a very useful way to and deal think, with it. I think you brought up a good point when you said the first year there wasn't a lot of that ritual because I think with something like 9-11, which is such a public tragedy, and, you know, the, the guys are down at the site, they are probably flooded and overwhelmed with memories on a daily basis. That's exactly what happened, and, and uh, certainly at the first anniversary it was just terrible mm-hmm. for everyone. Uh, by the second and third anniversary, people wanted to be alone, and they changed their ritual. So it didn't have to be the same thing each year. That mm-hmm. had to be settled into at some point. <clears throat> That's a good point. Um, I wanted, I promised a lady that I would, uh, Don, who emailed us on our blog, thegriefblog.com, and I promised her that we would, uh, by the way, her brother's picture is on the blog right now. <clears throat> her brother, nephew, and a friend were killed in Flight 175 on uh, 9-11. And that's the one. Where did that crash, Heidi, in Pennsylvania or something? Yes. Yeah, and um, because of that, um, it's interesting because the Pentagon, they have a lot of ritual, and uh, the uh, New York City area, there's uh, there's a lot, you know. Uh, but what about her? She emails and says, my brother, my nephew, and a friend were killed in uh, Flight 175, and she asks, is there any support, any help for 9-11 families? I'm not aware of any. And Heidi emailed her back and said, uh, um, talked a little bit about what's going on in, in the New York area. And she said, unfortunately, I live in the Midwest. And the prevailing attitude here is, thank goodness it wasn't us. I've tried to find a counselor, but there's no one who can understand why September 11th is different. In addition to September 11th, and then she talks about her father died, her mother-in-law died, and her um, her mom just died of uh, Hodgkinson's lymphoma, and her dad, her husband has cancer. So she has a lot going on in her life. But I thought it was interesting that she said that no one can understand why September 11th. And then she sent me a picture of her brother, which we put on the blog. And her comment just really wrenched my heart when I said we put we're putting it on the blog, and I mentioned her issues on the show because she said, "I'm glad you take me seriously." And I, I thought that was so that interesting. That so interesting to me. So she's had multiple loss, and she's asking why September 11th, why people can't understand that it's different, and I definitely know that Paul can speak to that. Um, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that I have come across as well that, and, and has been documented in research that the further away physically you get from the actual site of a disaster, the less people feel it and... Um, the fewer mental health services are needed. So the impact um, by distance really makes a difference. And I also felt that almost a sense of alienation uh, in other parts of the country when they could not understand uh, some of the things that we were going through. So I, I think that her, her observation, if not complaint, um, is one that I think can be validated with other people. Um, it's hard to understand this much like it's hard to understand grief unless you're part of it. And so uh, she has to find some, some other means, perhaps by email, perhaps by telephone. Um, or we might be able to search out some resources for her uh, that she has not been able to access. Because there are people in lots of places that are accustomed 
to dealing with trauma. So maybe we could help her in that way. That's what I'm thinking, Paul. If she could find someone like you in her area that understands trauma and understands a public tragedy and work with them in a, in a one-on-one situation. Yeah, and I, I would guess that after the show you can give me whatever contact information and, and I can work on that. Oh, that's great. Thank you. She's actually on our blog. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can get, I can also send you your email address. I, th- I think that, um, you know, to be understood is amazing. I mean, what you just said to her, Paul, I think is an amazing thing. And for other family members out there who, who feel the same way, for other people who are out with like um, 175 or whatever, people who are out there that feel, feel unacknowledged with any kind of trauma. That's, yes. To be believed. Yeah. Right. Um, that that they have a valid story to tell and that people around them may not get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an awful feeling to be that isolated. Um, now, I'll have to say that when uh, Scott was killed 24 years ago in an automobile accident, I was actually working uh, in a hospital as a mental, a clinical uh, nurse specialist on the surgical service. And because um, he and his uh, cousin were uh, dead on arrival, um, that's it, you know, kind of kind of ends it. And um, even though I was working in that setting, uh, you can lose that support. Huh. And and I felt, I believe now, a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome around the whole thing because, um, you know, people are there in a way, but I think they don't realize how traumatic it is unless you've worked in the trauma area. And that's something that, that unfortunately seems to happen. I, you know, I, I don't know a way that we can become more sensitive uh, to those kinds of things. But it, it, and it's it's not ill will. No. You know, it's it's ignorance or something. Yeah, it, I think that they they just as with Don, they don't understand that there's a difference. Well, well, in the trauma, we'll be saying with Don. In Scott's situation, the world wasn't grieving and the world hadn't had a loss. But for Don, it must be very strange to turn on the television and look at the media and have. New York City and in Washington, D.C., having all these memorials and having all these rituals and constantly talking about this loss, and there's a lot of people there to support each other, and yet she's removed from all that. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll give you that information, Paul, after the show about Don. That's great, and hopefully we can get uh, her some help. I wanted to talk about another, um, it's not exactly an email. Heidi and I were just at the Compassionate Friends National Conference, and I met a man there whose name was Royal, Royal, and um, in Oklahoma City, he was from there, and he told me that he was a firefighter and um, that... Um, he could. His child died two years ago of cancer, and he's also a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And he said his problem is that since he uh, his child died, he's questioning God and how could there be a God that lets little children quote burn up? Which I thought was interesting because, because he constantly sees fires, right, and constantly sees yeah. tragedy and death. And and one of the, I guess, um, typical reactions that, that people have to trauma and loss is that it really does shake their beliefs and cause them to question so many things that we all take for granted. All of that becomes changed uh, with something like a, a traumatic loss. Now, with a firefighter, do they have some kind of a prayer, they say, or something? What is God? Is there a connection with God and the, the they, they, There is a firefighter's prayer. Don't ask me to recite it, but <laughs> uh, but but there is a, a kind of a universal uh, that uh, firefighters do tend to say. 
Um, but even with that, um, when terrible things happen, people often ask why and right. get angry with God. Okay. Yeah, and I'm and I'm wondering how difficult it would be to have for a firefighter. Did you have an instance where a firefighter had a child die of another something else, and then you know, and then they go out to the fires and question God? That must be hard because they must. I don't know. They must have some strong belief in something to go out and risk their life. I would think a constantly. lot of firefighters after nine eleven questions how there could be a God and allow this yeah. to happen. No question about that. I mean that that often happens in disasters like that, in wars and calamities, and I'm sure out in the, with our Midwest friends uh, right now to be asking those kinds of questions. I don't have answers for them, but I know that they are good questions. People need to have the freedom to ask them and, and to be listened to and to think about those. They're important questions. So, so validating and listening to those questions, and I was wondering on top of that, how did you help the firefighters to work through all the anger, the legitimate anger, like you're saying, that they had after 9-11. I wanted to get back to a point Heidi was making about anger, and we were talking about anger. And um, do you have some suggestions for people of how they can work through their anger? Um, Let me address the issue of anger in men in particular, because um, people think of that as, really a great problem because the stereotype is that men can't deal with their feelings, especially angry feelings. And and personally, I I don't agree with that perception. Men talk and deal with anger in a very different way. Certainly in a firehouse, they are very open about their anger and about their feelings. It doesn't happen in a setting like a group therapy where it's kind of forced. Men don't sit around a nail parlor, you know, having their nails done and chat. You know, that's not what happens. Men like to play. We like to do things together. We have our buddies, our comrades. We compete, and we can be very forthright with one another in those kinds of settings. And so I think that the profession has to move away from the idea of uh, an office-based, traditional kind of a therapy, but, but get men in their natural habitat to talk to each other and support that. That's what happened in the firehouse, and I think it worked very well. Um, and so do they play basketball? and Basketball and football. They can, we can sit around a table, you know, having coffee, passing around a bag of, you know, pistachio nuts and cookies and coffee and make jokes. But in all of that, a lot of very good stuff could come out. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing you do, Paul, very well, and I, I know that because you were my supervisor and it's a real strength of yours, you do not pathologize. You build on people's strengths, and people do not want to be pathologized, and you normalize and validate what these guys were going through. Thank you for reminding me that I do that. It's really, um, I, uh, it is wrong to pathologize grief and traumatic grief and to call it something sick and to have to treat it. it it's about experience and talking, and it's a terrible thing to go through, and we have to find ways to recover and deal with that. Um, but having an attitude that says that your grief and trauma reaction is sick certainly inhibits people. That isn't the DSM manual, which is a diagnostic manual for, um, for actually for payment in a lot of ways, but anyway, for therapists. Doesn't it say after six months or something that there's a problem with grief? Yeah, it has these arbitrary deadlines, timelines that, uh, you know, turns it into PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and before that acute stress disorder. 
And, and prior to the current version of the DSM, there were other ways of trying to define it. And, and I think they're trying to pathologize it for the sake of categorization uh, for a medical model. Uh, really, it, it just is a disservice to people. Uh, you don't have to be sick uh, to talk and to need help and to be hurt by terrible things. Right. And um, I think it's interesting when you were talking about um, what men do is that teenagers do that. What, uh, you know, Heidi and I have done a lot of work with teenagers, and they know how to compartmentalize and play, or they just do it naturally. Right. Some of the best therapy happens with boys, especially when you're playing basketball, when you're not staring right at them, yeah. but you're doing something with them. That's right. It's, it's much more natural and uh, much more effective. I, I think it has been the profession's hang-up to talk in some therapeutic way outside of a therapy office, and, and we have to lose that bias. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying, Paul, that some of the best moments you had at the firehouse were maybe out at the parking lot that's, as people that's were right. leaving. That's right. You know, somebody wants to have a conversation about something important. It doesn't have to happen just sitting down in some formal office, but walking out to the parking lot or in the gym or during training or in you know, lots of ways. Well, and that makes me think that um, maybe also for some of these families that if they can play together and do fun things together, they might find some healing in that. that that's right. It doesn't have to be addressed uh, so directly. Sometimes just being together, sustaining the connections that they have, uh, things will come out mm-hmm. in that way. So now, do you have some special advice you want to leave our yes, audience with? Yes, two things I'd like to address. Um, especially when you have a loved one you know is hurting and you can't get them to talk to somebody. My advice is to go to therapy yourself and to make that therapy uh, uh, one that validates your experience. You can come home and validate theirs and, and show them that it is useful and perhaps they will get interested. It will certainly add to your skill to help them if mm-hmm. you're helping yourself. Uh, so I would give that one piece of advice to people. Not that people necessarily will take that piece, but I think it's useful to think about. Well, we talked, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing I I wanted to address for those people who might be listening who may have any influence about delivering services to uh, first responders, large populations of people who suffer from trauma and grief. Um, I, I would say that preparation is critical that they have to think in terms of making services easily available to people so that they can access them in some non-stigmatizing way and that the services are flexible, suited to the culture of a community. Something that works here in New York City may not work in the Midwest, may not work in San Francisco or, or anywhere else, and that they take into account making things available and accessible and, and culturally sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important. Um, I, one thing I like about the Compassionate Friends groups um, for bereaved parents, siblings, and grandparents is that they're just drop-in groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people can come if they want to, and they can talk if they want to, or if they don't have to talk or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, whoever wants to come can come. And that's probably the best way to maximize the effectiveness. People sometimes know themselves better. And they know when they need to show up and when they need to talk and when they need to be quiet. Mm-hmm. Right. And not everyone needs to do groups. You know, that's there's right. some people who like to listen to the radio show and, that's and right. you know, that's it. And they don't want to go out and do that. And, I, and I think that I fully support that. Yeah. Well, Paul, we're uh, really 
It's been great having you on the show today, hasn't it, Hyde? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, thank you for having me and, and uh, having a, this dialogue. So we yeah, can, it's, like, it's wonderful, and uh, thank you for the work you're doing, yeah. So uh, we've been talking today to Paul Green, who has been talking about providing help in the workplace and how New York firefighters heal after September 11th. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.